What's going on, everyone? This is another thrilling, exciting, adventure-packed episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week, we've got the therapy edition, because we're going to talk about one of my problems with my clients, and I'm going to get a little therapy on it from my co-host, Jillian Rowe. Hello. And Jonathan Hall. Hey, I'm really surprised we're not doing Jillian's therapy this week. I think it's <laughs> my therapy. That's our new so special segment, right? Needs a turn. Yeah, I think, I think that's what it is. Jillian's retail DevOps therapy. Oh, yes. Always. <laughs> You remember that time where you ran into that works on my machine kind of problem and you get in and you're thinking, okay, I checked the libraries, I checked everything else. And then it turns out that there's something really weird about the production data that's just different from your test data. Or maybe you're thinking, man, it'd be nice if I had a database that was as large as the production database so that I could actually see what the performance characteristics are. But you can't copy the production data because you don't want to have all the customer information on your computer. Plus, you may be running into regulatory things like financial or medical. So what do you do? Well, you try out tonic.ai. Tonic.ai will look at your data set will do the analysis and will build you a customized data set for your application so that you can test it and run it on CI and on your development machine without exposing any of the actual data from production. It's awesome, it's easy to use, and it's definitely worth checking out. So go check them out at tonic.ai. So I've got this client I've been working with for a while, and I'm going to lay out a little bit of the backstory here without turning it into one of those stories where someone says, long story made short, and then makes it entirely too long. But I think a little bit of the, the back history here is relevant. So building this platform for them, originally we were deploying it on just virtual machines. So it's a, it's a React front end, a Node.js API, talking to a Postgres database, there's a RabbitMQ server in there that the API can dispatch messages to that get picked up by other things listening to that those message queues, and it'll go and gather and collect data from different data sources and bring it all back for them. And uh, I wrote the code for those as well. And so we were running on virtual machines. So originally I was just like, all right, cool. We're just going to do some Ansible stuff here and... Uh, so every, all of the servers were configured and the deployments were handled by Ansible. And then they're like, oh, let's go to Kubernetes. So they built out this big Kubernetes infrastructure. And so I refactored all of the provisioning and deployment stuff so that it's just Kubernetes manifests. But as this project has grown, there's like this really wicked set of dependencies. So We've got the API server that's dependent on the Postgres database and dependent on the RabbitMQ server. And the API is really pretty useless unless these runners exist. So there's three different runners that also listen to the RabbitMQ queues as well to go and perform the jobs. And so the, the setup and administration on it is really kind of, it feels like it's getting out of control because the API server needs credentials to talk to all of this stuff. And then those runners, those task runners, they need their own set of credentials. And then they communicate with the API via the RabbitMQ server. And so there's a lot of configuration 
in this. And my thought, current thought process is I should not have done Kubernetes manifest. I should have built this out as a Helm chart just to really like the main reason is to leverage that power of the values.yaml file and, and pulling in secrets for different passwords and stuff. But my reservation there is like, it's already working. So is it worth the time and effort to do rework for this client to turn it into a Helm chart? And another little piece of info that may influence your input on this is they're also going to Argo CD. So they've got an Argo CD installation now. And I don't know if you've used that, but it's kind of like, so see if I can say this right, because I hadn't used it until they I just heard of it for the first time, it. maybe a week or two ago, actually. Yeah, it seems to be pretty new. It's like a CI CD for Kubernetes using Helm charts. Okay. I think it's the best way to describe it. And if anyone's familiar listening to the podcast with Argo CD or possibly from Argo CD, they may be screaming at their audio device right at the moment going, no, that's... I would love to have you on. Oh, yeah, this if sounds like a nice CD, plug. We want you on We're looking guest. for guests. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Come school me on this. Maybe that's so, what we, do. we should just start saying wrong things on the internet. <laughs> to, like, tell us what's up. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's actually a funny idea. That would be worth I would, I would worth do that. Yeah. April 1st is coming up soon. We could do a special wrong episode. That sounds really fun. I think we should. <laughs> yeah, because it takes trolling to a whole new level, right? Oh, it does. So that's where so we well, at. That's so where well, we at. I think the, the answer to all your problems is obviously microservices. And if you've tried that and it's not working, it just means you're doing it wrong. Oh, we're going to have to disagree here. The answer is Airflow. It has a Helm chart. It responds to message queues. It already, like, it does, like, all the things you're talking about. Like, I don't, I don't know Node.js. I have no desire to know Node.js. But, uh, but it does all the things. You can store secrets in there. You can store secrets from a secret store, like the AWS Secrets Manager. And you can make it HIPAA compliant if you need to, or you can just use Kubernetes secrets. So you can have like your secret store and you're listening to message queues and whatever else you're doing. And they could all just be Airflow DAGs. And you can make each one of those a plugin because you can create like Python packages that are themselves Airflow plugins that register like custom DAGs and APIs and stuff like that. So that's an interesting thought because they are moving some of their workflow over to airflow at the same time so the the client the client is uh it's in the medical field and they're doing a lot of data analysis so they have data scientists and i think that's part of part of my dilemma here is creating something that they're going to be able to support and maintain after i'm gone because they don't really have a development team they have physicians who are doing data science work and then they have an IT department that does the system administration. And so I want to do the no right JS. thing. What's that? Ever. I said, none of those guys are going to know Node.js like ever. Let me tell you. <laughs> All right. The uh, API, well, React had to be JavaScript, but um, the API they had already started and had a preference for Node.js on that. So we went with that direction. But all of the task runners that I've built for them, I've built in Python. Yeah. So then those could all just be in Airflow anyways. 
I that's kind of my answer to everything, though. It's like, why aren't you using Airflow? Um, yeah, I've picked up on that recently. Just a tad, huh? Just a little bit. Jonathan Use Airflow for everything. I wanted to do the good cop, bad cop thing. And he's, he's just not here. He's with the We write everything in Haskell. That's always been interesting. Oh, there we go. Do you want to defend that point? <laughs> no. I can do it in Perl on one line. <laughs> oh, Perl and Perl CGI. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> You click a button so a and the whole seriously. thing like just reloads. Pearl saved so, the human so, genome so Will, project. The, well, the physicians will go for that. <laughs> <laughs> is the question whether to rewrite your Kubernetes manifest in, as Helm charts, or, or is there a bigger uh, question here? No, that's that's kind of that. Yeah, that is the question. It's not kind of the question. That is the question. And my thought I mean, process there is that I think for someone who's not familiar with Kubernetes or Kubernetes manifest. I'm wondering if like managing the config values in a Helm chart might not be more user-friendly for them. So so here's the thing with that, in my opinion. If you're concerned that the person managing this can't manage Helm, you shouldn't be using Kubernetes. That's that ship is sailed. You can just set up me. Rancher. <laughs> yeah, but that doesn't solve this problem. Sure, it does. I don't know. You install that that solves the problem of managing Kubernetes runtime. I mean, no, like, no, you know, but it's... It solves the Helm chart issue too, because if you use a Helm chart with Rancher, you can create this questions.yaml, and then that, create, create that the generates Helm. a UI okay. in, in the Rancher like Helm chart deployment. Mm. So then you would be giving them a UI to which to deploy their Helm charts with and their doctors. Well, so they're going to like that. Like well, you, you can't give them question. a make file. But where is Kubernetes running? Is it, is it, I'm assuming you're using AWS or, or EKS or GKE or something like that? It's in their physical data center. Oh, it's their own data center. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I would I would be concerned about the whole management of Kubernetes at that point. Then, like if if they're if they're not using managed Kubernetes, or maybe they're using Rancher or something like that. I don't know. But if they're not using managed Kubernetes, and and you're the only one who knows Kubernetes, and you leave, they're going to be in a tough spot. Yeah, no, they have um be replacing you with somebody else eventually. Yeah, they have a they have a team that's built and deploying the Kubernetes and managing the Kubernetes. They used Nutanix. Okay. And does this team not understand Helm charts, or they just aren't involved at this level of the application? They're just not involved at this level. There's a very, it's a large organization, so there's a not a lot of communication between IT and uh, and this this particular team. So I think with Helm charts, once you have a Helm chart written, as long as you don't need to change the Helm chart, it's not that difficult. You know, changing config for a Helm chart is easy. In fact, it's easier than changing config in a Kubernetes manifest. That's sort of the reason Helm exists, right? Right. But but if you're concerned about the needing to modify the Helm charts, yeah, you're, you're adding another layer of abstraction on top of like five layers of abstraction. Yeah, I'm not too concerned about them modifying the Helm charts. I think it's mostly config values changing mm -hmm. like password rotations for changing database and RabbitMQ passwords or, you know, changing the URL of... Uh, of one of the downstream services, like the change in the database URL or something like that. I think and that's about as far as the perfect goal. Because, okay. yeah, you can use that values.yaml file and just put the minimum stuff in there that actually needs to change. And everything else can be hidden from sort of the, it's not a front end, but it's kind of the front end of the config. Yeah. And if you have a GUI, maybe, I don't know if Rancher's Helm GUI or something similar exists, maybe you could give them that too. Yeah, that was one of the cool things about Argo CD is it does represent the values file for the Helm chart as a in a UI. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, it sounded very similar to what you were just describing with Rancher, Jillian. Cool. 
Yeah, I mean, like, ah, I mean, I'm even thinking of future kind of maintainability. And I know for myself, I'm very leery of going into a place if they've had this totally like homegrown system that's not using anything like kind of managed that I can go in there and learn. Like, I think they'd have a much easier time because eventually they're going to need some kind of support for the system, right? Like if you're going off to greener pastures or whatever it is that you're doing, they're like somebody's going to have to support it. And I think it would be much easier for them to hire somebody to come in and manage a home chart rather than we have this homegrown system with these different virtual machines and like, best of luck, I'm out of here. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's my feeling about it. Yeah. And I suspect long term, you know, I'll be, I'll still continue to do limited amounts of work for them to do that support type contract. But I don't want to, that's one of my goals is I don't want to build something where they feel like I'm the only person they can call. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if well, you go nice thing about I mean, it's pretty common to support these days. Yeah. I was going to say, that's the nice thing about Kubernetes is it's pretty ubiquitous. I mean, it's not to say that Kubernetes experts are cheap, but they're everywhere. <laughs> It's healthcare. They don't need cheap people. They'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> like just add a zero, Jonathan. Every time you see anything having to do with doctors or physicians or insurance, yeah. coding, any of that, like medical coding, add a zero immediately. So I, I think my vote would be to, to do home charts. Yeah. I think it'll make your life easier and I think it'll make their life easier until until they need to change the home chart and then someone has to know home. Right. Which they're using Helm for a lot of the other applications they're running on Kubernetes. So I don't think that's an unrealistic expectation to put on them. That that tips the scale definitely in the favor of the Helm charts, in my opinion. It's yeah. already being used. You're not you're not introducing a new dependency or a new technology. So I would I would very strongly consider it if, if it helps you out. If it doesn't help you out, then. Why change what's well, not broken? But if it helps you out, yeah, I would I would post the home cards. Hey, folks, I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, I mean, it seems like a lot of things these days are kind of pushing us more toward productivity, right? We install VS Code extensions. We do CICD. We kind of get this stuff off our plate, automate as much as we can, and move quickly. And one of the tools that I tell people to get is something like Raygun. Uh, do you want to just explain real quick how Raygun can help with the productivity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's several fold. I like to think of Reagan as um, almost being like a full-time engineer on your team that's keeping an eye on things and is able to report the important faults or performance bottlenecks so that you aren't guessing. Um, and so that's one element. But then to that point where we store as all of the data we possibly can uh, on the context of the error or performance issue so that you know we integrate with source control systems, you can jump into our APM and get method-level timing details with the source code right beside it. So if you're looking at it going, why is this page so slow? You know, um, you can usually just eyeball the code right there and then. So speeding everything up, which I think is really important with, you know, our industry is under so much pressure right now. Yeah. You know, um, you know, we've got to try and get people be more efficient because we, we're not going to have a whole lot more people suddenly. Right. Absolutely. And I, I just I love that idea. I've done plenty of optimizations myself. Right. And having an APM tool that will actually say, yeah, uh, this is the slow code. Right. So instead of me trying to guess or look at it and go, oh, do I have an N plus one query here? Yeah. It just tells me where the problem is. And that's really powerful in something like Raygun or yeah, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Iron Man. And, and you know, the, the, the idea is that I would love a virtual Jarvis that's just going, hey, there's this <laughs> thing. Do you want me to go fix this? Do you want me to solve yeah. that? It's like, that, that's what we need to get to. Yep, absolutely. Well, if you want uh, the next best thing, go to raygun.com. Yeah, it's not Jarvis, but it, it will tell you where the problem is. So you can go fix it. You can get a free trial right now if you want. It's raygun.com. 
Yeah, I think it will help because the the stage we're at now is we're getting towards the end of the project, starting to do some turnover and like communicating to them, okay, well, this application is controlled by this Kubernetes manifest that lives in the same repo as that code, but it's kind of, it's, it's also dependent on this other repo because that other repo has to create config stuff that you'll need in this repo. And, and I think with Helm doing dependencies and the, I totally spaced the word, but where you can template out some of the stuff in Helm and just automatically pull that stuff in from the cluster, I think will make it a lot easier to manage for someone who's not intimate with the system. I agree. I think we solved that problem pretty quick. Wait, 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 hold up. You can't agree. You have to tell me why Airflow is going to do it better now. I mean, didn't I already prove that though? Like, you have Python. <laughs> are your microservices in like separate Docker containers already? Or are they like packaged as Python packages? Okay, fine. Let's dig into the runners. What's happening there? Tell me all so the, the runners. Yeah, the runners are packaged as Docker files, just little mini Python applications that when the Docker container launches, it connects to RabbitMQ, starts listening for messages, and then whenever it gets a message, it dispatches off the work to be done. So I use that pattern a lot, and I, I always use Airflow for that. So I'll have what I have like a crawler, what I call like a crawler DAG, which pretty much just sits around and waits for messages from the uh, from the message queue. And then every time it gets something that it should, it, you know, it will fire off the appropriate DAG. And if they're already, yeah, if they're already packaged as Python packages, I think you can use the new um, Kubernetes executor in Airflow. And somewhere in the configuration, you can use a custom Docker image. I don't know if it also has to have the Airflow worker installed on that Docker image too, but mm-hmm. I don't know. If it does go grab the Bitnami Docker image, Bitnami worker Docker image and, you know, just build on top of that. That's what I do. Because you can never go wrong using Bitnami as your, like, starting point. No, they're nice and paranoid, which I always like. I, I Yeah, I, I think that came off sarcastically, but I didn't actually intend for it to be that way. I, I love the, the Bitnami Docker images and Helm charts. They're just bulletproof. I love them too. And they're also uh, the easiest things to get through the AWS marketplace because they are, oh God, those guys are so paranoid. Like you got to have like rootless containers and this and that and the other thing. So it's so much easier to just go with the Banami Docker images and Helm charts because like they already do that by default. Yeah. And doctors are paranoid. So that'll make the doctors happy. Well, there you go. See, do any of the runners themselves, do any of them have like multi steps or could this be something that could be uh, I mean, you have that first like crawler kind of step that's waiting for messages from the message queue and then it can fire off another DAG and then that's it. Or does it get like more nested and more complex than that? It gets a little more nested than that. In one of the runners, it gets the message and that message will be a set of criteria that then gets parsed out into specific image queries. So it goes off and contacts and an imaging server, a medical imaging server for x-rays, MRIs, and stuff like that. So it it may break a single message on the message queue up into hundreds of different queries for the imaging archive server. And all of those get dispatched off to another message queue that has another listener that just chews through those queries one at a time. And then the other, one of the other runners, it's responsible for building a Jupyter Lab or an RSpark environment in Kubernetes for the data scientist. So it'll get a message and use that to provision like a, the notebook, the Jupyter notebook and 
mount NFS share so they have access to the data that's been collected for them. Cool. Are you doing that with the with the um Jupiter Hub Helm chart or did you do that like No, that's actually that? uh that's all done in Python using the Kubernetes API client and then it's a a Jinja template in there, the Kubernetes, it's just a Kubernetes manifest, but it's Jinja templated to configure it based on the the specific needs of that data request. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you're just doing Jupyter Hub, like on its own, that's not too bad. If you're getting into like the DAS gateway kind of stuff, or even some of the RStudio things, like if you, if you need to have like an additional service along with your Jupyter Hub, like you need to have DAS, RStudio, or what is it? Spark. Spark is the word I was looking for. Apache Spark. I think mm-hmm. it's a little bit easier to go with the Helm chart because it just builds in a lot of the like secrets and authentication for you. But if it's just a notebook, I don't know, that might be kind of overkill. Yeah, it's a notebook and then it launches some of the things they can configure. There's some things that get configured that they don't get a choice over, like the particular team that they work for has its own namespace out in Kubernetes with resource quotas against it. And so we check the resource quota and if they've exceeded their allowed resources, we reject it and don't launch the environment. So everything runs within its own uh, namespace. And then they can pick their, you know, CPU and memory that they want. And uh, then the, the volumes, the network volumes that get mounted are dynamic based on the data request that they've selected to analyze. Sounds like a cool system anyways. It's been boatloads of fun. I'm not going to lie. Do you have anybody making Dash apps? I've been uh, digging into Dash, Dash and Plotly lately for single cell data, though, not for imaging data. No, that's one of the the next runner that we have to build. We've got we've built runners for OMOP data, which is, oh man, I don't remember what OMOP stands for. It's basically the standardized medical database. Then we've got the one I mentioned already for pulling back medical images. And then the next one we need to build is for genomics data. Cool. Yeah. I'm taking one now and extending it, extending an existing, it's called single cell, which is like you take cells and then you look at the gene expression within the individual cells. So there's like an application that already exists, but then I had some clients who wanted like some other stuff on top of that application, which is pretty easy to do in Flask. You can just like mount them using the the middleware things. So then we have like separate the, the existing application and then I wrote what they wanted in Dash and it was uh, it was pretty easy to get up and running. I was surprised just how easy it was to get up and running because like I really don't know JavaScript and I'm never going to stop <laughs> complaining about JavaScript either. So, <laughs> you know, like there's that. But Dash was pretty easy. You really do just like load it, load it in there and it just brings up your plots and it's it was really, really fast. I'm just looking at the website for Dash because I hadn't I hadn't used that or heard of it. It's pretty spiffy. And one thing, uh, they have their whole like enterprise, you know, oh, you need, you need to do all this enterprise stuff to get a lot of features, but you can build all that stuff out with open source. You can use like, uh, if you use the new version of shiny proxy, the 2.6.0, you can use like any of the authentication. You can use SAML, regular authentication, open ID, any of that kind of stuff. And then you can just proxy like whatever you want in our shiny, a dash, a flask. I don't know. I'm sure it's got other stuff behind it. And then everything runs in its own individual pod. And I think you can also make it all run in its own individual namespace as well. But I haven't played around with that. Right on. This is super cool. So this takes your Python, converts it into JavaScript and displays it in a web browser. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It creates kind of like like widgets and sets up like the callbacks and the async code for you. So you don't ever really have to do that. You just kind of create 
like your you declare like your different web components. So like I have like a web component that's a scatter plot, or I have like a web component that's a form, and the form takes in a few different values. And I say, okay, every time one of these values changes, feed it to this function down here, and then we update the scatter plot based on like what we got in the form. Right on. Yeah, it was neat. Yeah, it looks much more appetizing than trying to do this all in in React, which I know I know for a fact is just my JavaScript limitations. So I'm not it's, that wasn't a slam against React. That was personal admission that I'm not a UI person. Well, I am. Like as long as I am a UI person, as long as you like a plain white background with Times New Roman font. I mean, if that's your jam, I'm your guy. <laughs> I always say a CLI is a UI too. Right? <laughs> it is. I say the same thing. I do user experience. I just happen to do user experience for scientists who need to deploy things on HPC centers with make files. It's still an experience, right? I, I was actually for a short time working with Canonical as sort of a consultant, as a, a UX consultant for a CLI tool. Isn't that interesting? Oh, wow. That is very cool. It's like, how usable is this tool? How can we make it more intuitive? Things like that. Oh, nice. That's super cool. I had a buddy yeah, who used really to say cool. all the time, real nerds just curl the website and parse the HTML in their head. <laughs> you know, like in the Matrix in one of those scenes where like they introduce what's his name to like this brave new world and one of the guys is just like looking at like bytes like running down the screen and in black and light green and he's like, it's okay. You'll pick it up soon enough. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, well. Sounds like I'm going to do some helm charts. That'll be fun. Sweet. Some Airflow helm charts, right? And Haskell. And Haskell, of course. Yeah. Throw some Perl CGI in the, mis- in the mix there, too. And then y'all will endorse me on LinkedIn for this stuff once it's done, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I think I actually still have an endorsement for Perl on LinkedIn. I really, I think I might. I'm going to go check that. At one point, I, I had more Perl endorsements than anything else, and it kind of pissed me off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm endorsed for my use of GIFs. Oh, that's great, though. Yeah. Good communication strategy. Right? If a picture is worth a thousand words, then a GIF is worth an entire novel. Exactly. So what do you think? Anything else you want to talk about? Or are we going to wrap this episode up here now that I know what i got to go do? I don't think I had anything very interesting to talk about. I've just been staring. I- I'm still trying to think of a pic, so keep talking. <laughs> Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Oh man, I had my picks before we started the episode ready. I lost one. I had two picks. 
but one has completely vacated the space of my brain. So I'll go with the other one. So the, my, my pick for this episode is um, like when you're learning DevOps, there's a lot of topics to learn, right? And so I think a lot of people may struggle with, I don't even know where to start. So I actually created a DevOps roadmap that's in the form of a choose your own adventure. And so like whenever I was a kid, there were these choose your own adventures book, choose your own adventure books. What's that? The Goosebumps one? No, this was pre pre Goosebumps. Okay. Goosebumps is for new kids. I'm way older than that. This was like stuff that was actually engraved into tree bark and then you passed around the tree bark from one person to the next. But for anyone who's not familiar with Choose Your Adventure, so you would read a chapter and then at the end, you're given some choices. If you think the character should do this, go to this chapter. If you think they should do that, go to that chapter. And I think that's a really cool concept for learning as well. You know, whenever I start to learn something, I may be interested in a particular facet of it. And so that's where I should start. So this roadmap guide I created lets you do just that. You pick any area in DevOps that you are interested in. And then there's some suggested learning goals in there. And once you master those, at the end of that section are links to four other areas of DevOps that are related to the topic you were just working through. So you pick whichever one seems interesting to you, master that one, Go to the next one. And, you know, after after doing that a few times, you will have worked through a bunch of the key areas of DevOps. So anyway, I turned all of that into a guide. And that guide is available at devopsfordevelopers.io slash roadmap. And that's my pick of the week. Nice. Cool. I actually have Alrighty. two picks. But go ahead, Jillian. You go first. Maybe oh, I'll think I'll of a third one by the time you're time. done. Okay. All right. Cool. Then I will, I will <laughs> keep on with buying you some more time. Uh, I think I'm going to go for picking Dash, actually. I was talking a little bit about it in the show earlier. It's a really nice data visualization tool. It's written in Python and React, but I never actually have to deal with the React, which like, I very greatly appreciate Dash people. I just I want for you to know that I, I do very much appreciate the fact that I never really have to deal with JavaScript. It wound up being really nice because I was just, like I said, I was just like, extending an existing app, and I just had to add... um like a couple of different plot types and data tables and stuff like that. And it just had some really handy features that made things a lot easier. Like I work with a lot of scientists and one of their issues with the existing application was that they couldn't download the charts or couldn't download the plots rather on the screen to put them into an Excel presentation because this is, you know, this is the world that I live in, you guys. So one really nice thing about Dash is that like when it generates the plots for you, it immediately has a like a download this as a PNG file, which I just thought was really nice. And I feel like it makes me look like I'm much better at like front-end web development than I actually am, which I also always appreciate because I will, like, I will take all that glory. <laughs> Undeserving or not, it's all mine. Absolutely. Um, here, here. Absolutely. Yes. And yeah, that's about it. Oh, and the other tool that I wanted to pick is uh, this tool called Shiny Proxy, which essentially gives you like authentication and load balancing and a bunch of nice stuff for both Dash and R Shiny because those aren't included in the applications by default because the companies are like trying to get you to sign up for the enterprise uh, to to get those things, which is fine if you're an enterprise and you have a big budget. Like go go support the companies, you guys. You people with budgets, go support those companies. However, I don't. So uh, my budget is you know like going to the mall and spending too much money, not enterprise prices on software. 
<laughs> so I'm just really happy that somebody came along and open sourced a nice solution for me to get all of the like to get all of that kind of thing in there. And I actually it didn't have the newest version that I needed existing as a Helm chart. So I built that as a Helm chart and it's on my Helm charts repo, which is GitHub. And then it's dabble of DevOps bioanalyze and or slash bioanalyze. And I have a bunch of other kind of data science, Kubernetes, high performance compute, Helm charts, just kind of a lot of sort of what I consider to be these kind of like basic recipes for kind of getting set up with the infrastructure that I think most data science startups will need at some point and hopefully making that less painful for them. That's it. Go ahead, Jonathan. All right. So I have two picks. First, I'm going to pick the Netflix series Ozark, which has just started its fourth season. It's Jason Bateman show where he is basically finding his way into the criminal world, uh, money laundering. So if you haven't started watching it, uh, of course, start at season one because it's very much a continuing story. Uh, but it's a fun show. It's a dark show. It's a little bit depressing. So if you're the kind of person who likes Sopranos or some, you know, that, that sort of show, then you'll probably enjoy this. If you want something fun and happy and romantic, don't don't watch this show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my, my other pick Thank you. I'm is Dave, <laughs> Dave Farley's YouTube channel called Continuous Delivery. It's at youtube.com slash continuous delivery. But Dave Farley is the author, author or co-author of the book Continuous Delivery, which came out, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. But he kind of helped pioneer the continuous delivery uh, idea. And his YouTube channel is great. It's, it's, he talks about all sorts of DevOps and Agile and continuous delivery related topics in short, very easily digestible episodes. So the kinds of things you could send to your, your manager and say, this is why estimating is hard, or this is what Agile really means, or whatever. If you're having a hard time convincing or explaining why Agile's cool or why continuous delivery is cool or, or whatever topic you're struggling with, he really breaks it down into a nice, easy, digestible uh, episode. You're, you'll probably learn a lot. Uh, at the very least, it, it's, it's, uh, you'll, you'll feel... Uh, the way I feel often when I watch his episodes is, yes, that's what I've been thinking forever. I wish I knew how to say that better. So highly recommend it. YouTube channel, youtube.com slash continuous delivery. Or just Google for Dave Farley YouTube, and I'm sure you'll find it. So those are my two picks for the week. Nice. Right on. So I think that's a wrap. And the uh, last thing I'll say before signing this off is if you or someone you know has a gambling problem. No, just kidding. If you or someone you know wants to be a guest on the show, just hit us up. We would love to have you on here. And uh, yeah, to quote the infamous philosopher Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Cheers. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.